Welcome to An Amber A Day, the podcast all about functional nutrition for PCOS. I'm Amber Fisher, a certified nutrition specialist and licensed dietitian nutritionist, and I have training in functional medicine. I also have PCOS, and on this podcast, we discuss PCOS in depth, the nutrition strategies for it, as well as the realities of living with it and making this lifestyle work. For further guidance and meal plan support, you can check out the show notes for links to my PCOS courses and programs. And if this podcast helps you, please do me a favor and leave me a review. Thank you so much for being here. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome back to an Amber a day, the functional nutrition podcast. I'm your host, Amber Fisher, and this is part two in my conversation with Jana DeMail. But I mean, all of that on the other side, it's interesting because it really changed my focus into what I want to do. And I finally came to the realization that I love being a mom, but that's not enough for me in my life. Like I have to have my business. I have to have this side of me. And I felt really guilty about that for a while that like everyone says motherhood is the most magical thing. And it, you know, how lucky to be a stay at home mom. And in my head, I'm like, it's not enough. I need more than this. I and went through the same thing. Yeah. I, went through that thing. I think, I think some, my theory is, I think some people are meant for, to be stay at home moms. And that's great. And I think that's a honorable and valuable and important work. But I also think that some of us are not meant for that. Mm-hmm. And um, like, I know that I have a greater calling outside of just being a mom. Like I love being a mom. I prayed to be a mom. I wanted to be a mom so bad. And I'm grateful to be a mom. Yeah, it has its it has its ups and downs, and it's challenging. <laughs> um, and definitely, we should be more open about that because it's not all like. And just because you've gone through like fertility struggles does not mean that you can't have difficulties as a mom. Like you don't have to be like, oh yes, thank you. Like I'll be grateful forever, and I'll never ever complain. You know, it's not doesn't work that way, right? But at the same time, um. I think a lot of people expected that from me too, because we had so many issues having a child and, and, um, I, people often told me like, Oh, just you wait and you have that baby. And then you're just going to want to stay home with the baby and you're not going to do anything else. And I'll admit that like when he was really little, like the first four, four or five months with him, I didn't feel like doing anything else. I took a long maternity leave, which is a great luxury of owning your own business. I took like a four month maternity leave. And, uh, but then it started to be like, as he got more independent, I started feeling like, you know what? I really miss this side of myself. This, like this, this skill that I've honed over the, all the years, like, it feels like it's going to waste for me to not share my knowledge and my skills to other people. Like how sad that like, I'm this excellent nutritionist and I'm not helping anybody. I'm not using it. It's just like atrophying, you know? So I don't know. I just felt this call to go back to work. And, um, cause I think the work that I do is really important work and it needs to be done by somebody. And, and yeah. why should I not do it just because I'm a woman and a mother, you know, I mean, I just don't, yeah, I just don't get down with that. You know, no, no, uh, no disrespect to anybody who does stay home. No. I have friends who stay home and, and that, you know, I mean, I think if it fulfills you, that's exactly what you're supposed to be doing. Yeah, I think so too. But I feel like the stay at home mom is the biggest powerhouse I've ever met in my life. I'm like, I don't know how you do it. (laughs) I don't know either. 
I don't I think they're saints. I don't know how they do it. I don't know either. I've done it. I mean, I I did it for like four months, you know, that's pretty much all I did was just take care of, of Calvin and, and, um, it was very exhausting. <laughs> like yeah, I, I was like ready for my husband to come home every day. Yeah. I'm like, take me this baby from me. Yeah. In, in 13 weeks during the pandemic, I counted every week I was doing it. And then when preschool said we're open, I was like, for the love of God, <laughs> it doesn't change how much I love him. It's just. Sometimes a little bit of, of separation is good for everybody. Like it's yeah. good for the baby to have some time away because it teaches, you know, they get like social skills. It teaches them, um, you know, that you're going to come back and like that they don't have to be attached to independence, I guess, teaches independence. But then also it's good for you because like, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the hardest parts about motherhood was feeling like I lost sight of who I was. It was like, now I'm Calvin's mom, you know, and that's a beautiful thing to be. And I'm so happy to be Calvin's mom, but also like, I'm still Amber Fisher. Like I still like, there's a a huge side of me that isn't connected to being a mom at all. Like there's an independent piece of me that like still likes to go places by myself. And (laughs) like, whenever I go to like the store by myself, I'm like, this is so weird. Like, I don't have to think about a baby right now. Like, and it's nice. It's nice to get a little bit of space. And I don't know if this happened to you. I'm sure. And I don't know, maybe it it happened for sure, but I don't know if it affected you. I had a hard time going from I'm Jana to I'm only Tristan's mom. We're out walking in the neighborhood. Hey, what's your son's name? Okay, bye. Yeah. Like, I don't exist. It's just my kid. Oh. That happened ever, everywhere I went. I'm like, I do not exist. The only existence I have is he's attached to me. And that killed me. I'm like, I'm a human being. Hello. I know. I, know. I struggle with that too, because my, you know, God love him, but my son is, is so cute. And <laughs> so people are just like, oh, you know, look at the baby. Even, even my own like family. It's like, I walk in to go see my, to see my family. And everyone's like, oh, there's the baby. I'm like, oh, hey, it's here oh, I am too. Like yes. I'm a person. Yes. I would have family so, ring the doorbell. I would open the door. They would walk past me and not say hello and say, where is Tristan? And I'm like, Hello, welcome to my home. Hello. I don't exist. <laughs> Thank you. I know. Same thing. I mean, and I, I just take comfort in the fact that I feel like hopefully that will be something that won't last forever. But, you know, <laughs> um, but it, it is hard. It, it is really, really hard. And I think that that started to happen to me during during pregnancy, too. It was like all of a sudden you just lose this whole people just don't pay attention to you anymore it's like the baby is like almost like the gatekeeper to you I guess too and it's like a baby everybody likes a baby so they feel uncomfortable talking to another adult but like they'll talk to your baby instead of to you but it just ends up being this thing where you just feel kind of lonely and separated and like Mm -hmm. left out and it can be really hard like being like adjusting to being a mom really it it really is hard I I there's a lot of things that I never thought about when I was going through infertility because my goal was my main goal was always just to get pregnant. Like not right. even just to yeah, just get yes, just get yeah. yes. 
right? Not even to have the baby. It was like literally the, to, to see a positive pregnancy test. Like I had never seen one before. And I was like, you know, that was my goal. And, yeah. and so I think sometimes it's, it reminds me too of like when Calvin was little, every day I used to read that um, Mayo Clinic guide to the first year, you know, and I'd read that and I'd stay up to date with all that stuff. And I never thought about like, well, what happens when this book ends and he's like not under a year anymore? Like I didn't prepare for like the toddler years at all or anything. Um, Same thing with, with pregnancy. I didn't prepare for the baby. I prepared for the pregnancy with infertility. I was preparing for the pregnancy test and not the baby. It's like, I didn't think ahead. So I think a lot of times, and there are a lot of people who deal with infertility that listen to this podcast. And it's very tempting to kind of like just focus on the infertility part and your role in that. But you know, there's a lot that comes up after you've been through infertility when you are finally a mom. Yes. Just adjusting to that, you know, and you can feel kind of guilty when you struggled with infertility because society tells you that you should just be like, just be grateful. Thrilled. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I was talking to Dr. Waddles. I was talking to her and she and I were talking about how, even though like I'm a mom now, the trauma from fertility doesn't go away. Like right. babies don't solve trauma. And I think that is something all women should be told because it it's not, it does not go away. It will, it lives with you. And there is yeah. nothing truer than that. Yeah. I actually at, at one time had, had tried had tried to start up a like little community about like for women who have been through IVF and are now moms, because I felt for me that, um, I did not start processing a lot of the grief and the trauma of that experience until my son was like already a year old, you know, it was just like busy to think about it. And now that he's older, it's like all this stuff is coming up. It's weird. You still identify as having infertility, even after you have had a child. And, um, and one of the sad parts too, is that the infertility community can be very kind of closed off to people who have kids and you're kind of not welcome there anymore because they don't want to hear about how you have a kid now. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet there's all this grief and and trauma and and pain attached to that experience that you still have to work through, even though now you have the, the child. And if anything, the child makes it harder to work through those things because you're distracted. Yes. You don't have time to think about it and grieve it. So um, and something that's interesting with our adoption situation is we have always wanted to, we've always wanted our, whoever we had to have siblings. Well, Tristan is both a blessing and a curse because we got him so little. And that's such a blessing that we will be with him for his whole life. But the curse is most of the kids in foster care are, who are available are nine years old. So we can't give him a sibling right now. And we would love to. But then we think about, okay, well, maybe we should go the infant adoption route. Well, that's a two-year wait. So then he could be almost five by the time we brought home a sibling. Well, that's a big age gap for him too. And so, you know, I sit here and I'm like, God, I wish I could just get pregnant because then he would have a sibling within the age range we would love. And so like those feelings don't go away Mm -hmm. because it's just like, and you know, I know it will all work out however it happens. But it's just hard going, I want this for him and I can't give it to him. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. 
I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. Yeah, today, actually, I was at the store and buying Calvin some clothes and I saw a shirt and it said, there's nobody like a brother. And I got really sad because (laughs) I'm going to cry. Because I mean, I just recently, like, obviously had my entire ability to ever conceive another child removed. So I'm still processing that fact. And we're still deciding, is he an only child? Do we want to try to adopt and have a sibling? We don't know. And and I think it makes it really hard when you ha- do, are faced with those decisions because I don't know. It's just one of those things that you have to make the choice, you know, mm-hmm. um, life isn't making the choice for you. And, and sometimes I feel like people who are able to get pregnant fairly easily, you know, they, it's like, well, they have the one and then they always seem to accidentally have another one or whatever. And it's like, okay. it, just, it just appears and you're like, yeah. okay. <laughs> They're like, okay. And it's just like life works it out for them. But, but women like us, it's like, we have to put a lot of thought into the timelines and the complexity and, and okay. If we did want to have um, adopt a child, then we have to go through this step and this step and this step. And how long would it take? And I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's just very, um, there's a lot of trauma and grief attached to that. And, so. and, you know, talking about trauma, like I have to think about Tristan's level of trauma he's had and what is allowed to walk in my front door as a sibling to him, because I can't right. allow too much trauma to affect my son. So now it's, it's so interesting. Cause if I had an eight-year-old who had eight years of trauma, it's like, Oh, who's coming in the door? Like, it's almost like it's no big deal, but because he's so little, it's mm-hmm. such a bigger responsibility to protect him. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, I really want to give you a sibling, but I don't know how right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he wants a sibling. He asks me for a baby all the time. I'm like, dude, it's not coming from me. <laughs> we went to do a tiger and he sees baby Margaret and he's like, Margaret, baby. And I'm like, no, knock it off. <laughs> no. Get comfortable being alone, buddy. I'm like, yeah, you have I a baby. Know. Her name is Piper and she's a dog. <laughs> I know. I'm like, I give Calvin like a little, uh, he has like a little Winnie the Pooh doll. I'm like, this is your baby. Um, You know, I I don't know. I mean, I, I go back and forth. I really do on whether to pursue the whole sibling route. I I have a feeling we're just gonna, we're just gonna kick it as a family of three. Cause I think one of the, I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's actually becoming a lot more common these days too. A lot of my friends only have one, you know, and and there's benefits to being an only child. I mean, me and my husband are both eldest children. And so we both have like these little kind of issues over the fact that in our childhoods, like we felt like we had to grow up too fast and like we had to take care of other people. And, and so we're kind of like, we want to shield him from that. And we want him to get to be a kid as long as he wants to be a kid and not have to. So I don't know. And then there's a lot of things you can do as a family of three too, that, that get harder when you have another Mm-hmm. person in the middle, like traveling and 
when there's not a pandemic, you know, um, <laughs> so, uh, for that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I hope I didn't I, just scare your listeners about foster care and adoption. No, it's great. It's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful thing to do. No, I mean, I think, and I've always said whenever I was, when I was a foster parent trainer too, like this was something that I would talk about a lot is you have to go into this with clear, a clear vision for what it really is. Yes. Um, not about you completing your family. It's about, um, you helping a child find a family. And it's really the focus has to be on the kid and not so much on you and your needs. And so if you go into it with that, you'll have a much better experience because I can tell you that these kids are not just like ready made for your, to live in your home. You know, like they, like you said, that it requires time and effort and like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that you have to work through with them. I mean, they've been hurt. So I I think that's the hardest mental transition going from I'm going to get pregnant Mm -hmm. to, and I mean, you don't have to get certified to get pregnant. You just get to get knocked up and push that thing out. Right. I mean, then you're with them forever, but like, I have to prove I'm good to be a mom. And then on top of that, it's like, Oh, you want to be his mom? Not only is it not about you, but get ready for what is going like. And I mean, and I've told my husband sometimes it is really hard looking to heal with him on things that I had no control over things that have just been done to him. And it's like, God, if he, if he was, if I had birthed him, like none of those things would have happened to him. And mentally it's a very hard transition. And so, yeah. Well, and that's why whenever we would be licensing people, we would always screen for people who had previous infertility because we would want to make sure that that person had really worked through their infertility as best as they could and kind of come to terms with it instead of sometimes people jump to adoption because they are like, no, we don't want to, you know, pursue any fertility, you know, we just want to kind of, and they don't think it through, I guess, or they're expecting it to be a different experience than it is. So there's always a lot of screening that goes into looking at people who do have histories of infertility, because like you said, like, there's a lot that you're now responsible for as an adoptive mom that you wouldn't otherwise be responsible for. And so it has to be about the child and not so much about the fact that you're trying to, you know, I don't know, heal your inner wound about infertility. Um, Cause let me tell you, they don't, (laughs) it doesn't heal it. Right. Well, I mean, same thing with, uh, honestly, with, with having, having a a biological child, it doesn't heal it either. I mean, I, I still, there's still such a, such an intense feeling of like shame and failure that I have over, over that whole experience, especially being, I don't know if you experience this too, but being a health professional, being somebody who, who actively works with people on their health so that they can like heal their underlying conditions and issues. And the fact that I wasn't able to, to fully do that for myself there's like a lot of, you know, embarrassment attached to that. If I'm honest. I, yeah, I, I 100% get that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's why I like heart disease so much is I'm like, I don't think I could ever go back and do anything with fertility. Like, I think it's amazing. You work with women and hormones and PCOS. And I think that would be triggering for me. (laughs) I'm like, all the heart disease. (laughs) I mean, honestly, what I think it is, if I'm being totally like clear headed about it for myself, 
is I think it's my way of almost trying to heal myself Mm -hmm. is by helping other women. I'm helping the younger version of me that didn't have that help. Yeah. So it's like, I, I get really pushed on to continue doing it because I remember what it was like to go through all of that. I remember what it was like to be young and to not be able to find answers and to not find anyone who seemed to care. And I just don't want, I don't want anybody else to go through that if they don't have to. But I'm also, I think I'm a good person to do that kind of work because I'm also clear headed about the fact that like, you know, there's not always answers for everything. I'm not over here saying every single person who works with me is going to get pregnant naturally and all is going to be fine. You know, a lot of my clients do end up having to use IVF or fertility treatments. And sometimes it doesn't work out either, you know, but it's like, I can at least help, help you to set yourself up for success the best way you possibly can. And then life and chance do the rest, right? Like there's just a lot we don't know. So, so yeah, I, I, that's one thing that I would have appreciated back then because I feel like there's a lot of people telling you there's nothing you can do. Nutrition plays no role. Doesn't help each year. I had a doctor tell me um, that she's like processed food has added vitamins. So it's actually really good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not kidding. Um, and then on the other end, you've got these kind of people who like clearly have never been through a day of like issues with, with like fertility in their life, but like they're providing fertility advice and they're like, just come to me. We'll totally reverse your fertility condition and you'll get pregnant naturally in six weeks or less. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> okay. In the middle. Like we do live in a world where we are bombarded with environmental toxins and we're inheriting these, you know, predispositions towards not detoxing well. And we're getting all this sugar in our environment and like all this stuff from the way we were raised. And there's just a lot of factors now that like people 50, 60 years ago didn't deal with. Yeah. So it makes sense that we have such a big fertility problem now, you know, and it's only going to get worse. (sighs) But anyway, that's my little diatribe about it. Yeah. It's triggering. I'll be honest. Like some days I'm like, I, I, I need to take a break. I actually make myself take breaks from it. Like every couple of months I take like a week off because I'm like, I just have to not think about ovulation for. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's thinking about ovulating alone. Like I just, I just thought about measuring my and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I might never have to do that again. <laughs> oh, I know. I am glad that I'll never ever have to go through IVF again because that was to be fair, like IVF was actually my favorite of all the fertility experiences that I had because I anyone who says they have a favorite of any of them. <laughs> hey, I like to rank, but like I did, I did um I did Clomid, several rounds, four rounds of Clomid. I did six rounds of Femara, Letrozole. Um, and then I did IVF and, and, uh, I felt like I liked IVF better because at least like I was being monitored and like, we could see what was going on. And, and I always had this issue. I don't know if you, this is sometimes common when people have like a lot of like cysts that keep coming back, but I had this problem where I would make a dominant follicle, but it wouldn't release. Interesting. I, don't know if you know, it's, I forget what it's called. It's called, 
I think it's the acronym is LUFS or something luteinizing. Anyway, it's, it's some problem with luteinizing hormone where it doesn't surge correctly. And so I would be doing those medications like Clomid and it would work. Like I would get a good follicle. I mean, who knows how genetically, you know, I didn't have great egg quality either, but I would still get a follicle. Right. But it, it like, wouldn't, it wouldn't release. So IVF was, was exciting because it was like, okay, at least we can make the eggs. We can take them out. And then, you know, from there. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough no matter what, it but is, I can imagine too if you go through the whole experience and then it's like, doesn't work. Okay. The only, so the only time I ever think I got pregnant was we, well, we were in the Bulgaria phase while we were kind of waiting. I was going to an acupuncturist and I had every single sign that I had conceived and then pretty quickly, like, did you ever, did you only do one transfer? We did two transfers. Okay. So you know, the feeling where like, it feels like it's ripping. Yeah. Okay. So I had that feeling for, and I knew what it was because I had failed IVF and she was like, I think your polyps are back. And she was 100% right. And then, and that's when I was like, I just can't do it anymore. Like, I don't even want to think about it anymore. Cause I, and having, oh, having polyp surgery sucks. So yeah. I've had OB and I, we yeah. joke all the time. He, he like, he wants to laser my uterus so that I can't mm-hmm. ovulate. Like or it can't, I mean, I can ovulate, but like not have a period really anymore or like mm-hmm. a very strong one. And he's like, just let me know. And it's really, for me, I'm like, can we do it tomorrow? And he's like, I kind of want to wait. I'm like, what are we, what, what are we waiting on? What are we waiting on? <laughs> and he close the door. I'm like, the door's been closed. What? Like, come on. <laughs> I know. I, I had a, I, I would get polyps too. So I had a, a hysteroscopy also. And, and um, yeah, they're no, they're no fun. Um, but like, I don't know. I mean, that is one thing that I'll say, of course, having a hysterectomy is like, it's major. I don't want to act like it's not major, but at the same time, one of the benefits of it is that my hormones are so much more steady now mm-hmm. because I'm on hormone replacement. And even though I'm like, you know, I still have estrogen dominance and I still have like insulin resistance issues and stuff that, that I work on every single day, but nothing's as bad as it was before. And I actually realized after they took my ovaries out that I was like living in chronic pain. I didn't even know. I didn't, I couldn't tell, but my, my whole abdomen was like swollen from those ovaries being swollen. Cause I, you know, I have PCOS. Wow. Just, he told me my ovaries were like bigger than my uterus. Like it was like, he was like, your ovaries were huge. Um, yeah. And I didn't know. Um, I mean, I knew like, I was, I, I thought I just carried extra weight in my waist because of PCOS, but it, it was actually swelling from those ovaries being inflamed. Um, and when that came out, like my waist is smaller, like my shape is different now. Um, and I like, I don't have pain in my back anymore. It was a stupid Crazy. ovary. So you know, even though I still deal with those issues, I just feel like it's, it's almost easier to manage the estrogen dominance now because I'm not obviously not creating as much estrogen. Like I'm still creating it through the fat cells and, and all that. But, um, and then of course the, the 
hormone replacement, but it's such a, it's a tiny dose. So all my stuff that I do for detoxification, like the supplements I take, I feel like they're working better. Like my mood is steadier. So I don't know. I mean, there are benefits to it, but then at the same time, there've been a lot of, there's been a lot to like the recovery process of it. Like it has not been as easy as, as I was hoping it would be. So I don't know. I mean, we just all have to, these are the decisions that like when we get into our like thirties and forties, like a lot of us just start having to make, you know, because a lot of us deal with estrogen dominance now. Yeah. I think they like, it's like 60, 70% of women. That does so, not surprise me. Me neither. Almost everybody I work with has it. Mm-hmm. They don't know they have it and it doesn't always come out on blood work, but they clearly do, you know? Like I put, I'm like dim detox. Everyone goes on dim detox. You know, that's a, right. it's like, I don't know that product. It's a pure like, use dim, but it made me have a period around the clock. So I was like, well, we're not doing this anymore. I cannot do yeah. it. I've heard that before. I know dim is an interesting. It can, some people have weird side effects with dim, but um, anyway, I don't know. So good luck on your decision about that ablation. I know. And you'll, oh, you'll uh, yeah, my, my doctor, it's so funny. He will say things like, well, why don't we just put an IUD in use? Then you can have the progesterone going all the time and you don't have to worry about it. And I'm like, well, why would I put birth control in my body when I don't need to, like, I'm not getting pregnant. Why would I, I've had so much crap inserted into me. I'm not doing it anymore. And I mentioned one time, I was like, I'm going to make my husband get a, a vasectomy just so he has to have a procedure <laughs> like I've had to have. And he's like, no, it's no big deal. We'll just, we'll give you an IUD. And I'm like, no, 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 it is his turn. He's due. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not well, doing it anymore. If I like the best thing that I ever did was the three or four years that I was on cyclical progesterone therapy and I would take bioidenticals every 15 days, kind of like what you're doing with the cream. Yeah. It was just, you know, cyclical. And then that would like help me have a period and it would make me feel good. And that was the best thing because it was like, but yeah, no, not, I, I never, I, I hated being on regular birth control. I never wanted to have an IUD like. Every, everybody has to make a different decision about what's best for them with that stuff. But yeah, it was like, I mean, what hormonal birth control does contribute to estrogen dominance too. So it's like, I don't have know. Have you read the book, your brain on birth control? No, I haven't, but somebody has told me to read that. Is it good? Yeah. Should I? So good. Okay. And Cause I'm I just, I for feel both. like all women should read it before either if they're on birth control or before they go on birth control, just so they're educated about their body. Right. Cause I think well, there's we're, given, we're given birth control. Like it's candy. Yeah, we are, especially with PCOS and stuff. And, yeah. and it's like, I mean, that's such a tricky topic too, because like for me, you know, one of the reasons that I developed endometrial cancer was because I wasn't taking anything. And so I had all this unopposed estrogen mm. and I didn't know that you could get like, I didn't know that you could do cyclical progesterone therapy. Like nobody told me about that. They told me either birth control or nothing, you know? So I didn't know my options were, um, but it would have probably been better to be on birth control than to let it go completely unopposed. Cause obviously that didn't work out, but it's just like, I do feel like 
it's given out like it's no big deal. And if you have issues with it, oh, you're unusual, right? Like that's terrible right. side effects. I'm like, no, no, no. We all experience this stuff. Like, yes, it, it's it's amazing, and it's so funny because I think as women, we're not really educated on like estrogen and the luteal phase and or like the follicular phase and then the luteal phase right. of progesterone. Like, we don't understand that like if you take estrogen around the clock your body's not really designed for that. If you take progesterone around the clock, your body's not really designed for that. And it's, we're just not educated enough on our bodies. No, we're not. We're not. I mean, I could, that's one of the things that I I've been doing a lot on TikTok lately. (laughs) And one of the things I'm trying to do on there is like, just educate people about hormonal issues Mm -hmm. and the lack of knowledge, like the ignorance surrounding those topics is like incredible to me. Like, I cannot believe some of the stuff and I don't blame those people at all because it's not their fault that they weren't taught that, but it's just amazing to me that we, that just this basic knowledge about how our menstrual cycles function or what birth control does or doesn't do, you know, like the idea that birth control fixes your hormones, like how prevalent that is and how many people's doctors have told them that. I know. It's, it's craziness. I don't know. There's just so many, so many things with all of that, but you can trust me because your doctor told you this and that's clearly incorrect. Yeah. Like, you know, how many people oh, I don't know about you, but... doctors and yes, they not trust me. I'm always, I'm always struggling with that, that uphill battle of like, well, my doctor told me this and you're telling me this and like, they don't, you know, if the doctor says it, oh, well, he must I not know. be wrong. Always having to remind people like doctors are just people. They're just people like you and I are people. Yes, they have gone through significant training and education. And yes, we should respect them. But also it doesn't mean that we have to blindly uh, agree with everything they say. And I, I do feel like in the medical world, there's this tendency for a lot of doctors because they're supposed to be these all knowing, all powerful people. Like that's how they're looked up to. Right. And if they don't know the answer, their first response sometimes is just to say, no, instead of saying, I don't know, they say no. And especially with supplementation, I find this a lot. Like if they haven't heard of a probiotic for this condition or that condition, their first response is no, you shouldn't take it. Mm-hmm. No, you can take a probiotic. Like that's like that's pretty universally helpful. Like, I mean, okay, there's variations with it and like, sure, some strains aren't right for some people and blah, blah, blah. But like, come on. Like I've had doctors be like, no, I don't, you shouldn't be taking a probiotic. Really? Why? Why would you just tell somebody no without any further guidance on why? Because they don't know. They don't know the research on it. They don't know about nutrition. They don't. That's the thing that kills me the most. I had it. So I did a, uh, I did a cooking class with a winery and everything I do is crazy high fiber when you're drinking. So that kind of that situation, Sure. there were two doctors in the audience when I was discussing that and explaining what it is and why. And they came later, they came to me. They're like, what you said was total garbage. And I was like, I'm going to school you on what you don't know because yeah. I'm not taking your crap. You paid to come to me. So guess what? You're in my office now. And yeah, I'm like, how many hours of training have you had? And they had like 15 hours. And I'm like, what, that's so that, less than what you're what supposed was, to have. What was it that you said? And what did they say? That well, I was talking about how like 
fiber does a great job of like slowing down digestion and like eating more fiber ahead of like drinking alcohol. It can actually like be beneficial for your liver and other things and just literally going along those lines. And then we were talking more about how like every, so I only do plant-based food mostly because I'm terrified of meat spoiling if I'm going to do a cooking class, I don't want anyone to get sick. Cause right. Like we live, I live in Texas. You live in Texas. Like I'm not going to transport meat in July. That's not a good idea. (laughs) So, but so I was kind of just talking about like what I do. And then, yeah, I was talking about the importance of fiber and uh, yeah, they tried to like come for me and I'm, and I'm like, no, yeah. On fiber, (laughs) on fiber. Okay. Fiber. I mean, that's old school. Like there's I know. fiber, like fiber and cholesterol, like fiber and aromatase, like fiber. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm like, well, what about digestion and all the, like all the things it does for, like, uh, no. Yeah. And I think they were just annoyed that a nutritionist was giving out any information at all. And I think they just felt threatened by that. Like you shouldn't be giving information to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, you shouldn't be giving information to people. <laughs> yeah, obviously, if you don't know the importance of something so fiber. simple as fiber, like, okay. <laughs> yeah, or like, I mean, that's even worse than the ones who are like, okay, just just take Metamucil. Um, oh my God, yeah, yes. That's the whole other thing. But yeah, to say that's not important at all, like, come on, man. Like that's like, like, I'm misinformed. I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. That, that gets to me. I, that's happened to me before with clients with um, gastroenterologists. And my theory on this is that gastroenterologists are very threatened by nutrition professionals because we get better outcomes with their patients And, you know, we could potentially steal a lot of their clientele, like IBS. It's all almost completely nutrition. Yes. I can't like IBS is almost something like I get braggy about IBS and how easily I can treat it. That's how it's so easy. It's like always, it's always food sensitivity and maps and, you know, and now the, now some doctors are starting to be like, oh you know, you should go on a low FODMAP diet. I'm like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like you should not be prescribing medical nutrition therapy. If you don't know how to do medical nutrition therapy, like FODMAP diet is, is a fine intervention to help support reduced symptomology in the beginning, but it should not be a permanent diet. Why? Because FODMAPs are the food for your good bacteria. So if we're not eating them forever, guess what happens to our gut? Makes yeah, I mean, I think, isn't it, look, you shouldn't even be doing FODMAP longer than a month, right? Well, personally, yeah, I, I don't, I always per- take a very therapeutic perspective with diet. And so I tend to start out restrictive to reduce symptoms and make people feel better, get their buy-in. And then we start slowly rebuilding. I've never, unless I had a very severe case, I, and I can think of one person I usually don't keep people on FODMAPs if I even do that for more than, yeah, more than a month or two max because it's not healthy long-term. It's the same thing with like the whole idea of like keto, like, yeah, sure. Keto can lower your insulin resistance in the short term, but it's going to make your insulin resistance worse in the long term because you're not eating enough fiber. Remember about fiber? 
it just bugs me. But I have so many clients who, who also see gastros mm-hmm. and the number of them that have been told not to take supplements that I've recommended, you know, just because the gastro just like either doesn't think it's important or doesn't know what it is, is more what I think it is, is ridiculous. And then, you know, a lot of those clients either they go ahead and take them, they get the benefits and they're like, oh, okay, like it's fine. But then I have a lot who get really scared by that and they don't want to try anything. And then it's like fighting an uphill battle because sometimes food alone just can't do it. That's true. Yeah, I agree. You know, and, you, know, you know how you said like IBS is like, you're kind of bragging with it. That's how I am with fatty liver and high oh, yeah, fatty liver too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's I'm like, Oh, you have fatty liver. Great. A, B, C, D. Like it's, I know. And it's, and it's funny. Cause these people, I don't think people actually end up calling me because like, it's cause they're so scared, right? Like they get really scared from these diagnoses. And then it's like, this isn't the end of your life. This isn't the end. And then you change everything and they go back to their doctors and their doctors are going, how did you do this? <laughs> and it's I like, know. it's not that hard. <laughs> That's the main way that I've gotten. I've gotten so many doctors who like now refer to me in town is just from clients who have had these crazy experiences and gone back to their doctor and their doctor's like, wow, how are you doing this? Like, what, what have you changed? And so they give them my name. And now I have several doctors in town who, who refer to me. And I think that's great, you know, because they genuinely care about their patients to the point where if they see people having positive outcomes, they want them to have those positive outcomes. But unfortunately, it just seems like there are some who are just so, you know, caught up in their own role in all of it that they they just can't fathom that their little, you know, IBS medication might not work as well as some dietary changes, like maybe cutting out dairy products, maybe, maybe, <laughs> you know, like, gee, <laughs> what I thought, you know, I mean, it's just... I don't know. It, just, it makes me mad because I think people really needlessly suffer with a yeah. lot of these conditions. And like you said, they're told about them like fatty liver. Like it's like this very scary sounding thing. And it sounds like the end of the world. And it's so not, it's so reversible. It's so yeah. manageable. Yeah. And so, so many of these illnesses are, and I think that's the sad part is you walk into a doctor's office and you're told you have high blood pressure, go take this medication or teach them how to shape their plate. Yes. You know, like, why don't you teach them before you put them on some meds? And that's where I just struggle is people are so afraid. They're like, Oh, I have to go on meds now. And they're told it's for the rest of their life. Like, and that's, so I, I, this is kind of, I guilt people a little bit. It's kind of bad, but so my husband's an investment. He's a CMO for a person, like a financial firm. And I talk about our bodies like a retirement account and how like you can't, you can't just put in 20% of your best days, right. Into an account. And then when you're sick, you can just like pull them out whenever you want to. And so I talk about how like you need to eat for your 60 year old self, because do you know how expensive it is to be on high blood pressure meds and cholesterol and all of those surgeries? I mean, it can be upwards of like hundreds of thousands of dollars Mm-hmm. or you can eat your vegetables now and save all that money later. And it's not true. Or like, true. what about the research that came out recently on, on blueberries, just specifically on blueberries. Someone did a study on blueberries and blood pressure. 
Yes. And I'm like, it's a simple little thing about what was it? They added a cup of blueberries a day yes. and their blood pressures like statistically significantly re- reduced. Yes. Just from that. Oh, I don't know if you know this four Brazil nuts a month, exactly four can help drop your cholesterol five to 10 points. No more than four. I don't know why they don't know why it's only four, but it's four. Oh, and, yeah. like, yeah. and blueberries help to filter like sugar in your blood and things. And People don't know. And so actually I try to teach my son things like that. Like I say to him, like orange things help you see in the dark. So he'll eat mm-hmm. carrots. So now I'm like, and I'm like, well, he doesn't really care about filtering blood sugar. So I got to figure out like some way to make blueberries sound cool, but <laughs> that's so cute. I love that. I know. And th- that's my struggle right now is trying my, my son is like, uh, you know, I don't know how he already is picky about vegetables and fruit, but he doesn't like really love them. So constantly offering them, constantly trying to get him to have them. And yeah. he loves bread, that little boy. Oh, yeah. But, you know, who doesn't though? I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> Me too. I didn't eat so great while I was pregnant. I was pretty, I had some pretty bad food aversion. So it's probably why I ate a lot of Pop-Tarts, if I'm being honest. <laughs> so, I just that, that was like the only thing that I wanted to eat the whole time was cherry pop tarts, which are so disgusting. Like I, I would not eat them now, but Um, (laughs) yeah, very specific craving. Right. I'm like, okay, of all the, of all the things like that would be the one. Right. I used to eat them a lot when I was a kid. And so I noticed that stuff when I ate as a child, that I ate a lot as a child came up and that was, those were my cravings. But anyway, that's a whole different subject, but no, this is, I, I want to, I don't want to take up any more of your time because we've been talking no, for like, this. it's been really great. And I would love to have you on the podcast again sometime. I feel like sure. you and I love to talk forever back. about. Yeah. And so, um, let me do my little close up deal, um, for everybody listening. Um, if you want to hear more about, uh, Jan, I'm going to put all her information in the show notes here, um, how you can reach her. And, um, she is, are you taking clients right now? Or are you kind of taking a sort of, sort of, kind of maybe and we'll see. Cause yeah, I'm in a little okay. transition phase. Yeah. She's, she's working on that PhD. So, um, so anyway, but, but if you, if you want to reach out to her about that, I will put the information below. Um, if you have not heard, I have started a new, uh, private community for people with PCOS. Um, if that is you, I'm going to leave some information below, but it's a great opportunity to get a little bit more guidance and support and just, um, mostly understanding about your condition, kind of like we were talking about today, like we want you to be educated. So, um, I'm going to have the information for that below. And, um, if you have questions for the podcast, you can email an amber day podcast at gmail.com and we'd be happy to answer your questions on here. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for, for sitting and talking with me today. It was an awesome conversation. No, I loved it. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay. Have a good day, everyone. Bye. If you learned something today or you enjoyed today's episode or both, I'd love it if you would leave me an iTunes review and share this with a friend. If this brought up a question for you that you would like to hear me answer, there is a Google form that you can use to ask me any question you want, and I might answer it here on the podcast. I do it all the time, and I would love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.